We haven't gone into the fan mail inbox in a while, and we actually have a bit of a backlog there, which I'm excited about. So let's quickly, before we get to our interview, just knock out a couple of letters, huh? Let's pretend we're on AOL and we just heard the nice man say, you've got mail. Yeah, you've got mail that you didn't ignore for three weeks. It totally came right now. That's right. Uh, One of our letters came from fan, friend, former guest, JB. And JB mentioned a lot of observations that we've already talked about this season. But one that really struck me is that JB noted She-Ra herself is not in this season much at all. It is a very Adora-heavy season, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but in these last few episodes in the sort of multiverse alternate world, we don't see the transformation sequence at all. He was comparing it to some of the shows from his childhood, I know he's a huge Batman fan, and how throughout episodes of hero shows you're waiting for that hero to appear you know you're waiting for bruce wayne to become batman you're waiting for adora to become she-ra and she she doesn't really do it uh and yet i don't i don't miss it that much i think adora is such a complicated and rich character that not seeing the hero every time i'm i'm okay with it but definitely in these last few episodes i'm surprised we didn't go back to the transformation sequence do you think maybe they want to reanimate it? I've, I've noticed an increase in the quality of animation, and I almost wonder if we're going to get a new transformation sequence, a la Sailor Moon. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I suppose that that's possible. I, I also didn't even notice She-Ra's absence until the second time I watched these episodes to talk about them. Uh, but you're right. It's totally like this idea of delayed gratification because when She-Ra shows up in the finale of next week's episode and slices and dices the portal. It's, like, really cool. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I love it. I think that's a great observation by JB. I'm not sure why exactly, but I bet it's definitely at least dramatic reasons, but potentially animated ones as well. Uh, we also got a letter from our listener, Chris. Uh, Chris wrote in with a really great observation uh, regarding our Once Upon a Time in the Waste episode, but it kind of connects with what we're talking about today. Uh, Chris said, As you say, it's pretty clear Mara didn't go insane and actually sealed Etheria away for good reason. She starts to say, Light Hope used, then there's this missing chunk involving weapon before it clears up, and finishes up saying Etheria has to stay hidden for the good of the universe. So because messages with missing bits always put me in an event horizon frame of mind, where when you hear the whole message, it completely flips the meaning of what you thought the corrupted message said, that immediately got me thinking, what if Mara was sealing Etheria away to protect the universe from Etheria? Maybe when the first ones studied the planet's magic, they discovered something crazily dangerous. I mean, there does seem to be a tendency for what's left of their tech to go nuts nowadays. It got into light hope. And Light Hope decided to use it, and Mara turned against her to stop it from getting off Etheria. But because Light Hope was damaged, I mean, she was a wreck when Adora found her. Uh, her memories of what happened have gaps in them, so all she's got is Mara turned against me because of data missing. And because she's thinking like a computer and can't see the errors inside herself, that seems to her to be Mara having no reason for doing what she did. I think that's an incredibly thought out and like great theory that I really like. Yeah, the the idea of the planet or the planet's technology being dangerous to the rest of the universe is an incredible idea. You know, at first I was thinking like, man, Death Star. But I wouldn't be surprised if eventually the series circles back to answer this because I'm picturing Entrapta's sort of floating diagram of the planet and how all of the different stones are sort of points on the planet's surface and they can sort of siphon from each other. What if the way that they connect is in fact some sort of super force that would not only wipe out the horde, but maybe maybe some good folks too? That'd be rad. Super red. But also creepy and scary. Yeah, too scary. Let's stop watching this show. Forget it. Well, wait. Before we stop, we have to address one more letter. This comes from uh, my best friend in the world, uh, Ben Rather, too. I think early on in season one, I said some comment like, 
uh, my friend Ben, if he's listening to this, and I'm like, he probably is. Well, it took Ben a couple of years, uh, but he sent us the greatest letter and and gift. Uh, so you might have seen in our Facebook page, Ben, uh, in his leisure time, is a woodworker, and he made us a plaque carving of our logo, She-Ra Progressive of Power, uh, set on either side with Adora's original sword from Filmation and Adora's new sword from DreamWorks. And it's just the sickest thing. We put it up in the studio, and he wrote a very nice letter that I'm not going to read the whole of because I don't want to seem like we're just congratulating ourselves. And I'll start crying like I have already several times over this gift. <laughs> it is it is genuinely the sweetest. I will say, like, Ben is the greatest person that I know, and uh, his kindness knows no bounds. But uh, he, I do want to read this line because it tickles me. So my middle name is Charles. And he says in here, it still blows my mind that somehow Eric read the zeitgeist closely enough to predict exactly when the reboot of Shira was due and when it would happen. The C in Eric Seagarneau is for clairvoyant. So I'm, that's, that's official now. That's canon. He also mentioned my college improv troupe, Barbecue Kitten, down at Bradley University in Peoria. Whoop, whoop. And that just proves that sometimes I black out on this show and just talk about stuff and don't remember talking about it. Because he was citing, Lori, when you talk about your history and your background, and I went, I mentioned those things? Cool. Oversharing. <laughs> Unlike me, everything I say on this show is very calculated and tight. I don't, I don't go on tangents. So anyway, Lauren, uh, what is your favorite pie and how much math do you use in your career? Hello, everybody. Welcome to one more week of Shira Progressive of Power. I'm Eric. And I'm Lauren. And I told you last week we had two really cool episodes to end the season. I didn't lie. Uh, I mean, I guess you can be the judge of what's cool. But if I were a listener, I would think this was cool. So today on the line, we have our old friend returning, uh, Mr. Tim Seeley. Uh, Tim is an incredibly prolific comic book writer, a really good comic book writer as well. Also has a great connection to the He-Man brand. You would have heard if you listened to our episode on marketing way back at the start of our second season, which I don't think a lot of you were listening for because you jumped on with the new stuff, which is cool, but you should go back and listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) Does that make Tim our first or second returning guest? Second returning guest. All right. Thank you for returning, Tim Seeley. (laughs) My pleasure. I mean, I always... I, I I really appreciate the viewpoint that you guys bring to this, and I always kind of felt like you were, you know, ahead of the game on on what the series was about. And I think by the time that new cartoon came out, you must have been like so vindicated. Yeah, Lauren and I definitely like patted ourselves on the back pretty hard. Well, once the immense shock wore off, yeah, there and was like two weeks of just stark shock. Also, in fact, we haven't recorded this part yet, but Tim, this talk is going to come immediately after we read a letter in which someone refers to me as clairvoyant for (laughs) that very same thing. So yeah, this is the victory lap episode, I guess. Yeah, as well it should be. (laughs) But uh, so Tim's connection to the brand, I guess we'll get into in a little bit, except that uh, I'll say that you and your brother uh, wrote kind of literally the book on He-Man toys, the, uh, the Art of Masters of the Universe, right? Is the title of that? Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful tome from Dark Horse Comics. So, so good. Uh, But Tim, you're on some pretty exciting projects right now. There's two in particular I want to talk about. One not related to He-Man at all. But if Lauren will indulge me, I'd love to talk about Money Shot for a second. (laughs) Sure. I would love to. Yeah, I have no idea what that is, but I'm delighted to hear. (laughs) Yeah, can you you, uh, give us the elevator pitch for Money Shot? Yeah, I mean, the quick pitch is... In the future, scientists struggle to fund their uh, research. Uh, one particular group has a, uh, a transportation uh, device called the Starshot, which costs too much to use. So they fund a porn website to, uh, to, make, the, to, to um, make money to fund the, the research. So it becomes called Money Shot, and they go to alien planets and have sex with aliens and film it, and then that's how they film their research. <laughs> How they fund their research. I think Eric's <laughs> laughing at like the sexy part of it, but I'm over here laughing because you called it the future when scientists can't get research money. <laughs> yeah. That is that is the today, my friend. Yeah, and it's an extrapolation, obviously, um, 
of what you know of what scientists are going through now um but it's also uh you know it's kind of a humorous att- attempt to just kind of talk about where we are as a species because one of the jokes in the book is that you know by the time the future rolls around like uh everybody and they're like you can see porn of anything you want you can just throw on deep fakes and your and your computer can pull an image of you know your high school grammar teacher and the you know the people the guy who works at the pizza joint down down the street and make porn that you want to see and people are so jaded that like this this project appeals to people because they're seeing things they could never have seen before oh. and that's just sort of it's me sort of i mean and the book is not porn itself um there isn't like explicit sex or anything in the book but it's about porn um and it's just sort of about how we deal with sex and how weird we are about it and and how many you know how many things i think in the future hopefully we'll get over but i have my doubts that we will I wanted to call out, I, I think this is interesting. So you have a, a co-writer on that project, correct? Who I know because lots of my friends follow her on Instagram. They're uh, beady. Yes. Great yeah, she's a, a, a comedy writer, right? As well as kind of like an internet personality. Yes, I would call her a personality for sure. But she's a great writer. Um, and... She, she and I have been friends for year, like internet friends for like twelve years. Like I don't know what, why, but we're this. We have this weird friendship that goes back to like, I think she tweeted at me about hack slash like the first week I was on Twitter. No shit. And yeah. So we've been talking about doing something together. I've tried to get her on things for at least ten years, um, and uh, this was the one I finally got her with. I, you know, I had pitched her all kinds of stuff. And uh, other people have bitch pitched her so many things. Um, and this was the one that she finally was like, you know, this is what I want to do. That's so cool. Yeah. So if, if you guys aren't familiar, um, Sarah, you said BD is the last name? Yep. So, Nacho. Yeah. Nacho Sarah. Exactly right. Um, she has a crazy Instagram and Twitter account. Very, like, politically active, but also very, like, uh, very sexually funny. So we don't really right. talk about sex a lot on this show, but hey, you know, we're broaching the topic. We got our buddy Tim here. Um, Wait, no, but my, my brain is just stuck on like, so the idea that porn is so customizable that people are bored with it kind of reminds me of the new Jurassic Park movies where we just have to keep making bigger and deadlier and smarter dinosaurs. Yeah. And that's that's, that's where my brain is stuck. I'm just spinning my wheels over there in that pit. Yeah, this book is like the Jurassic Park of porn. Like that's, the, <laughs> that's the idea. That's so, great. But yeah. If that's um, not but, like on the back cover, I'll be very sad. The yeah. Jurassic Park of porn. I would have to attribute it to you, though, because I can't give a quote from my own book. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, the idea is just to like talk about our weird hangups and, 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 like, and the, the things where we, we as humans really mix um, emotion with sex in such a way that like – you know, the question, some the, some things that the book asks is, do they, do they do that across the universe? And the first arc is really puts us in a place where the characters are on a planet where sex is simply for survival. And it's just about repopulation. And there's no, you know, sort of the, these hangups that we have on it. But, but that also entails its own thing. So um, it's sort of like doing, you know, Star Trek or Twilight Zone, like this sort of uh, metaphorical, you know, allegorical stories, but, but really like talking about things that I think about a lot. That's so cool. Uh, so money shot is available on October 23rd, I believe is the release date I'm seeing from vault comics, probably yeah. at your friendly local comic shop. You might want to specifically, uh, pre-order it cause sometimes the indies get missed, but this yes, sounds amazing. And it'll probably sell out. Um, Sarah has a lot of fans and already i know one of the things that stores tell us is they don't know how many to order because sarah fans like call and just ask like what when this book is coming up but they think it's going to come out you know the day they call so they don't understand pre-order very well yeah uh, so you know because they're not traditional comic fans so yeah if you can order it now you will save yourself from missing out yeah absolutely uh, tim i feel like you and i could have a long talk about how the direct market works in the comic industry but that's not what people are here for <laughs> no and no one wants to know about it because it's so fucking terrible 
<laughs> I do want to uh, real quick read one of Sarah's tweets that I think will sell uh, sell people on on her in this book. This is the perfect intersection of her kind of sexual personality and of her political tweets. Uh, on August 18th, she wrote, find someone who will fuck you as hard as the Trump administration is fucking the planet. And I think <laughs> oh. that's something we can all get behind. <laughs> oh, Sarah. Visceral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds right. But moving away from that for just a second, and I know we are kind of the money shot podcast, but uh, you also are writing a new He-Man book that we talked about a little bit on our PowerCon episode. This is very exciting. Yeah, it's called Masters of the Multiverse. It's a six-issue miniseries from DC, um, and it deals essentially with um, uh, – well, there's a multiverse of Masters of the Universe stories essentially – in, in, a, in a lot of the way that we, we had the Spider-Verse uh, movie. Um, but this is just, uh, it, it kind of features a, a Prince Keldor before he becomes um, uh, Skeletor, and he's from the plant, the world Anti-Eternia. And he's recruited by uh, the 1987 movie He-Man and the Tappers of Grayskull video game He-Man uh, to go across the multiverse to try to stop Anti-He-Man from... Uh, destroying all the castle grayskulls in the universe okay th- there's so much i want to ask you about and i think the first thing is you said the tappers of grayskull tabards yeah. tappers it's a video game what what is that it's a video game called tappers of oh grayskull. no i have heard of this it's like a phone game yeah it's a phone game oh and yeah yep you stumped me on that one <laughs> nice yeah, yeah that's and is a is a major character in uh, in our story. What are if you can say some of the the different multiverses we'll be exploring? Will, might we see a Shira? Or I imagine there's some kind of rights thing there. Um, well, we do, there isn't a rights thing, um, but we don't because I had so much to deal with just with the the human the He-Man multiverses. I kind of shied away a little bit from Shira. She's definitely mentioned. Um, and there is a connection to anti-He-Man there. But in general, like, I just had so much to work with. I didn't deal a lot with She-Ra. Um, I deal with the Horde and some of the other peripheral characters. But, but uh, yeah, I just didn't have room for – I mean, I, that's the thing about this book so far is that I just wrote issue three today. And I was just like, holy cr-, – you know, I finished it today. I just I, – I, I couldn't believe how packed it was. And I, I didn't get in half of what I wanted to Damn. do. That's so cool. It sounds very Kirby-esque in its, uh, in its conception, like the idea that there's an anti-Eternia. Is that, is that kind of what you're going for here? Yeah, well, it actually comes from anti-Eternia in, in the genesis of this series was um, there's an old German audio play from like 1984 or 5 um, that it was just – the translation was basically you know where He-Man goes in this world called anti-Eternia. And the He-Man that is there is like – you know. He's like midnight black skinned and he's got red hair and he's like a mirror version of He-Man. And in that world, um, He-Man is evil and he gets his powers from a place called Hell Skull and, uh, and it has a beautiful human face instead of a skull. Uh, it was just such a weird – yeah. Yeah, it's a real thing. Um, and I, I think I first heard about it – I mean it's been years. But uh, when I first heard about it, I was, I was like I'm going to do that story someday. And then in the meantime – I think Mattel kind of realized how cool it was. And so there's now, you know, a classics action figure of it and uh, of him and, um, and some other stuff. And, but there was an implication that the Keldor of that world was the good guy. Uh, and I love that idea that the Skeletor of that world was the hero. Um, so we play around with that idea. And this is sort of a origin of that, but it's like, I, I twisted it quite a bit. Uh, but uh, it's basically, you know, so the main hero, the main character is Keldor. Um, and he, but he lives on the world of Anti-Eternia. And, and the, that world uh, has been abandoned by Anti-He-Man. And Keldor kind of is wondering why. And that leads us on to this, uh, because Anti-He-Man is like the scourge of their planet. And that leads us on this crazy world-to-world hopping adventure. That's so sick. I uh, I can't believe that you mined a German audio play for the, well, I totally believe it, but that's just the coolest thing. Here I was thinking it was like the He-Man take on Dark Knight's Metal and it's it's way more organic even than that. Well, it's way before. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah. There's so much cool stuff in that story. So much weird stuff and it's short as hell, but, um, it's There's this, so I just used a lot of the implications of the story and then, you know, the story was short. So I like, you know, I, I kind of extracted like what that would mean and, um, why is there an anti-attorney Attila and an anti-attorney man at arms? But, um, like, how did that happen to them? And, and, and so like, you kind of find out some pretty weird stuff, uh, but it's big. I mean, the, the, the scale of this is just huge. And uh, I'm getting away with so much stuff. Like, I don't want to ruin too much, but, like, the first issue is Anti-Attorney. The second issue is the new Adventures He-Man. So we get Space He-Man. Um, oh, shit. The third issue is the, the 2000 X cartoon. And I won't ruin where we go from there. But, like, you're going to get to see stuff from Acid Universe that is, is so deep cut. Um, but all of it is, you know, done in the style of that particular version of Masters of the Universe. I'm just so curious about sort of why this happened or what could happen after. I mean, you're talking scale, and it's clear that you've created something massive and overarching here. On an earlier episode, we were talking about how there's theoretically a, a He-Man movie coming. There's the new She-Ra. We have the Kevin Smith He-Man coming. So clearly, like, Motu is just in the water right now. How did this opportunity come your way? Like, why are we getting this now? Well, I mean, I have a pretty good relationship with Mattel. Um, and we did the Injustice Masters of the Universe comic and Art of He-Man. And um, I've been telling them for a long time that I, I wanted to do, you know, a story with anti-attorney and they were like, okay, yeah. But so they, they were the ones that came to, they came up with the idea of doing, um, uh, this thing with the multiverse. And they said, well, you have any ideas for how you would do that? And I was like, I just so happen to have one. It so dovetailed perfectly with what I was thinking. Um, and they were cool. They were just like, yeah, that, that sounds crazy. Damn. I'm so excited for this. I, I can't wait to explore all these different facets of He-Man fandom. And uh, for those who don't know, Tim just wrote um, He-Man versus Injustice or Masters Universe which, uh, versus Injustice, which was also like a really cool tour of the He-Man and DC universes. So I feel like there's no one better in comics land to to put this out there. I hope that means you get a video game. I hope they let you have one. <laughs> I mean, on like the cool side of doing, you know, working with uh, the Injustice guys is I got to meet them on there here in Chicago. So. Um, I got to kind of become friends with those guys, which is pretty cool. Damn. I have, in the meantime, in the background while you guys were talking, I've fallen into a hole, and that hole is called Tappers of Grayskull. Oh, no. And what I'm looking at right now is an Easter-themed image of He-Man in a bunny suit holding yeah. eggs, saying, Happy Easter, Skeletor's buried in eggs. This game is very festive. Uh, <laughs> Easter. We have to do an episode on it. Easter He-Man is in the comic. No way. I was going to joke and say that. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding. Oh, bunny He-Man. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to play this after the podcast. Good Lord. <laughs> so He-Man and the Masters of the Multiverse number one comes out uh, November 20th at comic shops everywhere. This one you should still pre-order, but it's probably a little more likely that your local retailer will have it on their shelf. That said, take no chances. No, they won't, because Eric's yeah. going to buy them all, and then there won't be any more. <laughs> I already have mine pre-ordered, thank you. And the masters of the universe. All right, so we teased uh, your connection to the, in particular, the She-Ra mythos, which listen, long-time listeners will know, but uh, we were talking a little before we started recording, and Tim, you and your brother, in addition to writing the Art of He-Man book, you... Uh, we're one of the first people to work on this new iteration of She-Ra. So you and uh, and Steve wrote the uh, the brand Bible that ended up kind of informing She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. Is that right? Yeah, I and mean, I would say informing in, in the sort of like uh, school book way. Like, I mean, they did their own thing, and they had, you know Noelle did her creative vision over the top of what we gave them, which was you know a primer, a uh, sort of a breakdown of you know, the relationships between the characters and how, uh, how uh, Etheria worked and, and sort of the philosophical difference with Masters of the Universe was like a big thing. But they, you know, so we wrote this document, I think it was, um, you know, 30, 40 pages uh, and kind of encapsulated, you know, all the characters. And then when they started working on the cartoon, that gave them, 
something that they, you know, that they hadn't had before, which was um, a lot of background. Yeah, you kind of were the like the um, concierge Wikipedia in a way, right? For their for their brand. Yeah, needs. but like simplifying it and and making it, you know, evident what was the connective tissue. Um, one of our jobs was to to like separate things that were exclusively Masters of the Universe from She-Ra. Like, you know, it was just, you know, like, oh, these are things that you shouldn't use because they are definitely Masters of the Universe things. Um, and these are things that's, that, you know, are, are across the brand. Um, I was kind of impressed, that, you know, that they watching the show, like, we had kind of said, like, you know, Grayskull is very important to Masters of the Universe, but less so to She-Ra. But they, they figured out a way to make it important to that, too. So that was pretty cool. We cite our conversation with you all the time because you were on our show ages ago, probably, as Eric said, before some of our listeners were even paying attention. And back then we were trying to pry into, like, who do they have rights to? Do they have rights to Adam? Do they have rights to specific hordesmen? And every time a new, like, hordesman appears, we're talking about that last conversation we had with you. Um, but I'm sort of honored because off mic you told us you weren't watching the show until we invited you back. <laughs> so what do, yeah. you, what do you think? Yes. I mean, I just had, like, a weird thing. <sighs> Part of it is, like, you spend... I spent so much of my life with this stuff. Um, and I, I want there to be new versions of it for other people. Like I definitely do, but I also am aware that that's not me. You know what I mean? It's not for me. Um, so like, which I'm okay with, but I'm also like, well, you know, I don't, I don't need to, to watch this. Um, I just, you know, I'm glad that that little girls are watching it, but then, um, well, part of it was going to PowerCon and seeing so many young women all of a sudden showing up, and they were so excited about Shira, and that was cool. And that kind of inspired me. And then um, uh, you guys mentioning that uh, we should talk about this episode that dealt with kind of a multiversal theme. And um, so I watched like half the first season, and then a couple episodes in the third, including the one that you recommended. And uh, yeah, I mean it's. Thank you. Uh, I should have been watching it. It's just hard for me. I tend to pick things that, like, I don't know, are outside my purview. Like, I also don't watch any of the DC uh, superhero TV shows either. Um, not because I don't like them. I just I get my fill, you know. Um, but this was great. I was I was I really enjoyed it. I'm glad that I got to check it out. The 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 fact that it's not what I would have done is okay with me. Like I, you know what I mean. Like I think that there's a tendency for people now to be so possessive of things that, that they love. And I'm not that way. Um, so I'm glad that it's not what I would have done. I'm glad that it's completely unique. I was definitely about to say thank you for that because the worst parts of this fandom, but fandom at large, you know, we see it a lot in Star Wars with the new movies too. There's this bizarre crowd that just latches on to what something used to be or what their favorite version of something is, and they just insist that that's all that should exist. Oh, yeah, the ruined childhood, which drives me crazy. Yeah, like and I just know, like, as a you are a content creator, a major content creator in this fandom, and you are saying there's room for all of us in the sandbox, and I'm just so happy to hear that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, and that kind of drives me crazy that there's this idea that something is ruined your child is ruined because your child is ruined because you didn't see the version reflected back at you that it didn't grow up with you which is ridiculous because you know you you always will have the thing you grew up with the original three star wars movies will always be there and none of none of that changes anything that if you if you made like a much worse movie than any of the the prequels or sequels that it still doesn't change those three movies that that you love so much so weird to me and yeah it's just like I, I never had that. I don't, and, and maybe, I don't know, I'm kind of flexible, I guess, in my possession, possessiveness, you know? Well, I don't want to paint with too wide a brush anyway, but I was at Star Wars Celebration this past year, and the fandom seems to have really warmed to the prequels because now there's this new thing they can be upset about and compared right. compared to the fresh hate they feel now <laughs> that old healed hate maybe is not so bad maybe it's even comfortable and so i actually think a lot of this outrage is is manufactured anyway i think you're right yeah i th- and i think um you know 
people don't have really a good sense of, of, of how they actually feel about anything. You know, like I think we, if you, and, and, and there's this whole new group of kids who only grew up on the prequels and the Clone Wars cartoon. So like, of course they're nostalgic for that because it's the same scenario as it was for me in the first three movies. So like how, you know, like how can they not see <laughs> in, in 25 years, you're going to have a bunch of people who grew up on force awakens and you know what I mean? And they're going to think those things are great and they're going to not be interested in, you know, I don't know, Vader's grandson's, uh, cybernetic, dog movie like i can't wait for that movie yeah that movie's gonna be great (laughs) yeah i i I think though there's like an extra level of maturity not to butter you up too much but like the fact that you were so close to this that you truly like you left a mark on this project but also you're like celebrating that someone did something that you wouldn't have done i think that's just so refreshing and adult because i think a lot of people I mean, you of anybody, you have a right to be possessive of it to a degree, right? Because you literally got paid to work on it. And even you're like, no, I'm glad. You know, I'm glad it's for a new audience. Yeah, right. If I'm not a dick about it, you shouldn't be a dick. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And certainly we have at least anecdotal evidence from our guests and our friends that interest in the new versions creates interest in the old versions. You know, Super 7 et al. are all still making classic figures, and now there are media iterations, including the new comic that you're making, that celebrate the old versions, and that has to be partially fueled by the influence of new fandom. Oh, for sure. And just going to PowerCon and seeing, seeing it be vibrant, was all. that's all you need. I mean, that's all you need to know. Um, and having, you know tons of teenage girls show for Noel signing is that's what more should, could you ask for, you know? Yeah. That I mean, will literally keep the convention going. If, yeah, if, if someone wants to go to that convention, they should want people to show up. Yeah. And then the, I, I was there, I watched teenage girls who had just attended Noel's signing go and buy classic vintage Shira figures from from vendors. I watched it happen. I know it did. They were dressed as, you know, Glimmer and whatever, and then they went and bought the old version. Um, like, how that isn't encouraging, I, I can't imagine. I, I, I guess, you know, uh, it's this thing I have, and, in, in, you know, on the progressive side, like this thing where these old white people rail about, you know, minorities and immigrants coming to our country. It's like, who do you think is going to buy your house when you retire, you dumbass? You know? <laughs> like, I, I just... That kind of thing, like this possessiveness without foresight is <sighs> like I mean, my favorite thing. I, you know, I, I kind of feel like that's a really sharp metaphor. Like people might think you're being glib with that, but that's so true in a way that like, you know, it's true that America is becoming less of a white country. And the two responses are either to embrace the future or to hold on to whiteness at any cost. And I think and, that, that explains the political yeah. divide pretty well. Well, I definitely yeah. shuddered when you used the word foresight because my political fear these days is that people have foresight, but they just know that they will be dead. And so if the planet gets completely ruined, but they were wealthy while they were alive, then who cares? And I, I, I sure don't yeah. want that to be it. I, I would rather it be a lack of foresight than clear foresight and just willful negligence. I think that's great. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> so before we get to Shira, I guess since you brought up politics, I, I feel like I have to ask you who's your person in the uh, in the primaries? Oh, Elizabeth Warren. But hell um, yeah, yes, I love but I him. Say, I was a Bernie guy last time, and I still like Bernie. Um, but I feel like other people have taken up his message and do it better. I uh, agree. So I I still like him. Um, I'm not gonna. I don't think that'll ever change. Um, but yeah, Elizabeth Warren I think is just fucking incredible. I love how she how how well she articulates and how well she appeals to people. And um, yeah, I think she's great. Um, I I really kind of I, I like Julian Castro too. Um, he's pretty amazing uh, and smart. And I'm I'm kind of I under I get the Yang appeal. Like I do, I, 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 you know, that sort of, that, that, uh, tech kind of 
uh, pragmatism actually does appeal to me. Yeah, I think that Yang is maybe like one election cycle too early, uh, just because like UBI and stuff I fully am on board with, but I just don't know if right now it's the it's what's going to sell. I but can't believe that Yang and Joe Biden are in the same freaking election. Right. Like that, that is the same year of our history. <laughs> right. Yeah. But on the other hand, it goes to what you both were saying about like foresight. Like maybe it's folly to like not be considering these things now. Like for instance, I didn't really think Jay Inslee was great, but I loved his focus on the environment. And yeah. I'm kind of like, okay, this isn't an election about the environment, but also it is because if we don't have good environmental policies, we're not going to be alive. Well, imagine yeah. if, if we had embraced an environmental priority back in the Al Gore days, maybe we yeah. wouldn't be experiencing the type of pain that we're experiencing right. now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, and th- and that's the thing is I, I think, you know, Americans only really react when it's crucial. And I think you're right. Andrew Yang is going to be absolutely necessary in four years when all the jobs have been mechanized and, and, you know, people finally see that with like 30% unemployment, we need to do something. Right. Cause what happens when trucks drive themselves? We're out of our biggest, uh, our biggest job sector. Yep. And then, I mean, honestly, so at some point doctors will be unnecessary. Like that's going to happen. Like you, I, I know people hate to hear that, but at some point you won't need a doctor because you'll just go to a, you know, you'll diagnose yourself with your home computer and it'll be more accurate than they could be. And that's, that's just where we're going to go. It's, it's just, you know, if we survive this, that's the technology that will exist. So um, at a certain point, you know, the, the only jobs will be caretaking for old people and politician. Like that's, you know, like that's, and maybe writer. And I guess because it's hard to do that with an AI, they're not impossible. Yeah. Hopefully there's still, I mean, I imagine the hospitality industries last because you're going to want a human touch, but that'll become more boutique and bizarre, right? Like, It'll be yeah. like a curiosity to go out to a restaurant, I feel like. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I, so we're either we're going to get one of two visions of Star Trek, either the Federation utopia where it's post-scarcity and everyone can do what they want all of the time, or the burned-out 1990s Los Angeles <laughs> eugenics wars started by Khan. One of the two is going to come. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe one after the other. Right. That's what happens in Star Trek. So <laughs> That's what yeah. I was going to say. You had to, in Star Trek, they had to experience scarcity at first. So <sighs> may, oh, may we all get there. Anyway, let's talk about cartoons. So for today's episode, we talked about, uh, re- or we watched Remember, which is the fifth episode of She-Ra Princesses of Power season three. And it's kind of, um, it, it, Tim's an appropriate guest because it does kind of deal with the multiverse in a way. So in the last episode, Katra uh, triggered a portal that kind of ate all of reality inside of it. And this episode starts where all of our characters don't really, they're in uh, in kind of the status quo of the first episode, but advanced a little bit. Adora's like a conquering force captain and she doesn't remember how she got there or really anything that's going on. And everyone's pretty oblivious, but they keep saying how perfect the world is. So I'll spare the rest of the explanation because I don't want to waste anyone's time, but it's a pretty interesting episode about examining uh, how things could have been and and trying to break out of this like quote perfect reality. The kind of really good place this episode is what I like to say. It's it's like the resets in the good place season where it's like the status quo is totally different, but also reset to square one. Yeah, and it was it's interesting. I you know I hadn't watched uh, all of the episodes, but I watched I'd watched the first several, and then coming back to this was like oh I, I it was fresh in my mind to see how how they continued that. Yeah, that's pretty appropriate, right? That you watch the first few and then jump to this one. Yeah. Yeah, you probably remember that time of their of the show better than I do. Yes, I was. It was within week a week or so. What this episode really challenged me on was my personal tendency to wonder if the choices I made in my life were the right choice. And, you know, I have faced some big ones recently. You know, I am mid-divorce. I moved recently. I am a year into grad school. And I feel like I have a, a maybe unhealthy tendency to wonder 
what could have been if it had gone a different way? Would I have gotten what I wanted more effectively if I had taken a different path? And we see at least Katra get what she wants, but it doesn't go well. <laughs> and it was kind of this like bizarre reassurance for me, like, no, the course you're on is fine. It's where it's, it, you are where you're meant to be. And I think Adora learns that she is definitely where she's meant to be too. Yeah, and I, li- I liked, uh, it sort of reiterates the Katra-Shira relationship, but um, it sort of, you know, really shows you what sets them apart and why they went different, even though they clearly have, you know, a lot of affection for each other. I thought that was, you know, it's a restatement of the theme of the show and some of the major character arcs, and it does a really good job. There's a certain inevitability to it, I think. So... That Catra Adora relationship, one of the most intriguing parts about it to me was that we see Adora as Force Captain, and early in the show, it's framed like maybe Catra is jealous, maybe she wanted to be Force Captain and she thought she was good enough, but she is really chill not being Force Captain in this episode. She's kind of cashing in on Adora's power and is sort of gladly the number two because she has Adora's friendship and it was this reminder that all of Catra's like wounds and her her motives they've escalated so far like now she wants to destroy the world but the root of it was just all she wanted was Adora to stay with her Um, and it's really a tough a tough reminder this episode I thought it was interesting too though because she said something in there that she had it at least as far as I know, I hadn't said before, is I can't, I don't want you to win. That's all that matters is I can't let you win. Um, you know, which, so she's really bitter. I mean, she, it's, it's jealousy to some degree, but, but also like immensely personal and, and wounded. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting, um, you know, version of their relationship. Yeah, I kind of took that as, because uh, I, I think you're right. I think this is kind of the most ultimate statement of her feelings towards Adora. It's almost like it's showing you how far she's devolved in this season. As If you had any doubts from the last episode that like her sole goal is to not have Adora come out on top, which is fascinating that her means of achieving that was to make Adora's life perfect, but also yeah. like rob her of the life that she should be having. Yeah, because as long as she didn't win, right? Like, because her version of winning is is saving people, you know? So that's Catcher got what she wanted until that moment. Where in this episode do we think Catra woke up? That's a great question, because I think it's a little ambiguous how much she knows the whole time. I really thought the first time I watched watched it that she knew right away Mm -hmm. and then the second time i watched i went no i think she is getting the same flashes that everyone is getting and she's maybe pushing them away and denying them a little bit harder but man i do like a read where she's just aware the whole time and she'd rather like live in the matrix you know yeah that what what made me think like you is when shadow weaver kind of is very kind to her at the start of this episode uh, like caressing her cheek and saying like, be careful, don't roughhouse and stuff. And I was like, only a very aware Catra would like make her shadow weaver act like this to her. But I don't know. It could just be part of like the quote perfect world. But yeah, I, I think that she probably wakes up fully in the battle with Adora at the end where she starts to cackle. I think the Joker laugh is her, uh, is her awakening completely all of the voice acting in this episode is so intense i wrote the word like unhinged a couple of times not just the catcher laugh but when we see uh adora when we see amy carrero in hordak's chamber with scorpia just like losing her mind over what she thinks should be there and it's not uh but of course the key's not there because in this in this reality hordak didn't build the portal. He didn't get the sword. Like, we're not there yet. Yeah, I remember maybe it was Katie. One of our previous guests was saying that in an interview, 
Noel said that Katra was written differently after they met AJ Michalka, after that audition happened. And there were so many like little meows and moments, especially during the roughhousing. I just can't imagine anyone else playing this character at this point. Yeah, she's pretty grand. Uh, what I love is that Scorpia, amazingly, seems to be pretty aware the whole time. Like, not fully, but she's the only person besides Adora who isn't ready to go along with this fantasy world. I thought that was such an interesting touch, and I don't know necessarily why that was the choice, but I think it's really great. It seems to be her love for Katra that snaps her out of it, and I wonder if it was for her the intensity of the difference between this world and the real world. Because for some of the characters, like the, the Horde kids, they're, they're kind of still running the status quo. Like whether they're in this world or the other one, they're up to the same thing. But Scorpia is in a very different place, literally and metaphorically, than where she's supposed to be. And I just kind of imagine that in the like science of what's going on here, she's a lot more disconnected and like a dissociative maybe than the others her world is so different now it's a great read love that love that read what about madame raz i mean i think that the this is where it turns into a twilight zone episode right where um you know you you see the reason for why this is and and how it works and it's kind of nebulous and um i thought that was kind of a fun little frame with madame raz yeah, I really appreciated her being here. And I, I had kind of similar questions about her as Lauren did about Catra, which is like, is she really there and aware? Is this just part of the hallucination? I don't know. I think we're supposed to, or not hallucination, but, you know, part of the rewriting of reality, or, or is it like her, her? And I think we're supposed to get that it's it's the Madame Raz, and maybe her yeah. kind of scattered. But she kind of exists in multiple worlds or something. yeah. Yeah, you're right. It is very Twilight Zony. I think that's pretty nifty. Uh, yeah, and I think we get some good background into what uh, as to the real characteristics of Mara, which I believe we will have talked about in the cold open when we record that. But this yeah. whole series, we're made to think Mara like went crazy, and here Madame Raz spells it out. No, Mara saved everybody. Yeah, Madame Raz had two lines. One was, for Madame Raz, it was yesterday, which I think does support the read that she maybe exists outside of time a little bit. She's a little bit more magical. But I laughed out loud because when she describes what Mara did, she in fact says, it was crazy. But in the like uh, <laughs> hyperbolic sense, like not it was actually insane but just the exaggerated like that was buck wild there's just another use of the word crazy and i thought that was very clever writing <laughs> she's very um rafiki-esque like i wrote rafiki as in the the baboon no the the mandrill sorry from the lion king she she hits adora on the head with her staff and that's like right out of the disney oh movie yeah for sure. Damn. And in that in that in that movie as well, we're trying to get Simba to remember who he is. And I was like, I see you, you nerds. The only other thing I wanna point out is that uh there's this really kind of tantalizing line that Raz has at the end of the episode that I think we can discuss whether or not it pays off where she says she tells Adora, Oh, you have to go back to the beginning. And Adora says, Well, I did go to the beginning. I went to the fright zone, I went to where I got the sword. And Madame Rez is like, no, you have to go to the very beginning. Now, I'm still convinced, and I think Lauren might disagree with me, but I think she means Eternia or where she's from. Oh, that could that, Yeah, that totally would make sense for setting up another season, too. Right. And I have a feeling, no spoilies, but I think that plays into what happens in the climax of next week's episode as well. Yeah, I'm willing to buy that. Even even if that's not what they were going for, I do like it. But Adora in the moment is like, oh, I have to go find Bo and Glimmer, which is, you know, the beginning of the rebellion. It's the beginning of some other things. But Mara is definitely not done on this show. I left this episode wondering when she was going to come back and when we were going to learn more about her. Because she doesn't feel finished, and that makes a lot of sense to me 
even just as a hint that she has more to show us. Absolutely. And maybe there is something about the Starship Eternia. Tim, did you tell them about the Starship Eternia? Do they know about new adventures? <laughs> I have this weird <laughs> fan. Tamara is in uh, issue two of uh, the, the book. So, oh, yeah. So it would make sense. I don't know. Yeah. Where would she would connect in this version of She-Ra? It's, that's an interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure how that would work. But, um, but yeah, she, she is in the new adventures issue. So we all have to go read He-Man and the Masters of the Multiverse issue two, at least. But you know what? Get the other five while you're at it. Yes, please do. <laughs> Tim, we can't thank you enough for being on the show and, and talking about She-Ra with us. Uh, is there anything else you would like to plug or remind our listeners about before we sign off? Just check out Money Shot and Masters of the Multiverse, please. And you're also currently writing, uh, oh my God, Bloodshot and Scattershot, yeah. right? Scatter, yeah. Shatterstar. That one's over, uh, but I'm writing Bloodshot. You can write Get the Shatterstar Trade. Uh, I'm writing Bloodshot for Valiant Comics, and I'm writing um, Dark Red for Aftershock. Busy, busy dude. I also just recently read your Nightwing run, and that shit was really cool. So, oh, Thanks, man. Hell yeah. Lauren, is there anything else you want to tell people before we sign off? No, I'm just really psyched that we are kind of friends with Tim Seeley. <laughs> and we can just talk to him on Facebook whenever we want to. It feels pretty good. <laughs> And then next time you do this show, we'll have to make sure you can get in the studio so we can uh, share a PBR. Yes, I'm always for that. <laughs> Excellent. I know it's not 10 in the morning, but it's still anytime is PBR time. Agreed. Wow. Thanks so much, guys. Porn and PBR. This was a very saucy episode. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, I can't stress this enough. Make sure you don't unsubscribe to this podcast between this week and next week. You're really going to like next week's episode, too. We really made sure to end the season with two bangers. So uh, thanks for listening and keep being saucy. <laughs> thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank Bye. you so much, Tim. Thanks for listening to she Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressive of power.